You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Hamid, one of the PhD students of the program. In January of this year, Kamala Harris celebrated her impending inauguration as the Vice President of the United States by gracing the cover of Vogue magazine. While it's not uncommon for noteworthy politicians to make the cover of Vogue, the cover actually gained notoriety for the Vice President's presentation. Appearing washed out and poorly lit, the cover instantly stirred controversy with commentators questioning how the world's most prestigious fashion magazine could print a cover of the second most powerful politician on the planet looking decidedly unvogue and even messy. While many would be shocked, scholars of race and critics of the fashion industry were quick to highlight how the controversy surrounding Harris's Vogue cover was only the most recent example of the ways in which the fashion and beauty industries have long been out of touch with any standards of beauty beyond whiteness. From technical aspects like lighting to makeup, to fundamental knowledge of palettes and undertones, within the industry of beauty, there's a long and troublesome tradition of reifying intersectional forms of exclusion through the construction of standards of beauty that continue to this day to be based on standard of whiteness. And it would seem that not even the Vice President of the United States is immune to that. To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined this week by Amanda Roberts. Amanda is a PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science, specializing in political theory and intersectional feminism. She's also the mind behind the beauty blog Amanda Glowgetter, a lifestyle blog focusing on issues of race, beauty, and mental health and well-being. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Asif. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm really glad we got to do this because you had kind of talked to me about your work in the area of beauty about a year ago, because we were still in person, so it had to be over a year ago. And it just seems like a really fascinating area of social science, which I don't think it gets talked about, you know, the idea of beauty and the construction, conception of beauty. So I'm really interested to know, how has beauty been constructed over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I will venture to correct, like, it, it has been studied actually quite a lot in different contexts, but not in the, like, specific way that I'm interested in it. So this is like a side project from my, like, dissertation, but generally my interest. So I run a beauty blog, and this is my side project about, like, color cosmetics and beauty standards and how shade ranges, availability, and naming of foundation shades exclude dark-skinned people of color and construct beauty in very particular ways that exclude dark-skinned people of color in particular. So that's the angle that I approach this question from if we just frame it. So to speak more directly to your question of how beauty has been constructed over time, one of the things that I'm really interested in is there's this myth of white naturalness. In early travel journals of Europeans encountering indigenous populations in Asia, Africa, um, Europeans claimed that in these journals that everybody is naturally white underneath and that the skin was altered using oils or paints or juices to darken the skin. So there's this, this myth that everybody is naturally white underneath some kind of like rudimentary form of cosmetics. Um, and this constructs a paradigm wherein white skin is presumed to be the default and anybody else is like a deviation from the norm. And I'd argue that that persists today in color cosmetics, yes, but also in the way that we 
even conceptualize things like inclusion and diversity, which still frames white people as standard and black people, brown people, Asian and indigenous people as diverse, some kind of deviation from the norm. So that's kind of an example of like a parallel between a historical instance and then how it persists today. Then in 16th and 17th century England, which a bit of a jump, but stick with me, um, as the British Empire was starting to take shape, cosmetics and beauty were actually used as a way to create a British identity that separated British people from the colonial other. So we start to see the like ultra white makeup that we think of on the likes of like Queen Elizabeth I. Um, that starts to distinguish the white upper class, usually British self, from the black and brown colonial other. So we start to see the creation of a racial hierarchy based on a white identity created and partly constructed um, and exaggerated certainly through cosmetics. Um, and then the final point I'll make about this is that this, of course, has an intersectional dimension to it as well. So in that era, we start to, we, we see light skin associated with the upper classes because they didn't have to work outdoors, of course. But then in the post-industrial era, um, with the introduction of factories, we start to see this flip, right, where factory workers are working indoors and they don't have leisure time outside. So then tan skin becomes a sign of leisure, a sign of you don't have to stay inside and work in the factory. You have enough money to go out and get a tan or, or go down south for the winter or something like that. So we start to see the politics of skin color and how cosmetics and tanning to an extent construct and shape these ideas. It's so much more complex than this, um, but this is just a snapshot of some of the kind of key points and eras and how things have evolved. So... This concept of colorism, which is at the heart of this, talk to me about colorism. You know, what is it and how does the beauty industry construct and sort of reify different discourses of colorism? So colorism, just to give like a, a definition to start with, uh, it's prejudice or discrimination against people with darker skin, whereas racism comes from someone outside of a racial group, colorism will occur within a racial group. Uh, so for example, a white person may display anti-Black racism, but within the Black community itself, Black people themselves can display a preference for light-skinned Black folks over dark-skinned Black folks. It is, of course, a lot more complex than this, uh, and it it shows up in various racialized communities. That's just uh, like an example. And there are studies that show that many white people report feeling more comfortable around light-skinned black people, that they're somehow less threatening, that light-skinned black people actually tend to earn more on average than their darker-skinned black counterparts. And uh, this isn't new. So this goes all the way back to slavery, where light-skinned enslaved people worked in the house, um, again, that indoor-outdoor distinction, uh, whereas darker-skinned enslaved people were made to work outside in the field, and this preference and discrepancy kind of persisted. Now, in the beauty industry, it's not... So talking about uh, color cosmetics specifically, it's not uncommon to see brands create foundation shades that just fully exclude darker skin tones. 
And for context, um, foundation is a complexion product that's meant to match your skin to kind of like blur or conceal imperfections. So having an exact match with the skin is ideal and pretty important. Uh, so we see a lot of big brands and some examples I can think of like Physicians Formula, which is a drugstore brand, Bourgeois, Chanel uh, and Tarte. So I would, I would say like drugstore affordable brands and higher end brands both do this. These brands will release foundation shade ranges that either fully exclude darker shades or they'll release shade ranges that are really imbalanced. So three light shades, three medium light shades, three tan shades, and then two dark shades at the end, kind of like an afterthought that aren't even that dark. So to tell a brief anecdote, I worked at Sephora, which is a large cosmetics retailer um, back in 2015 when I was first starting my PhD. And I was stocking shelves one morning really early and I was seeing the shade names of the foundation. And this is where the idea for this project came from, because there was this strange phenomenon that I noticed in the shade names of the foundation. And I went home and I researched it and I didn't see anything about it. So so for brands that do offer a variety of shades for various skin tones like Lancome and Laura Mercier, the light shades will have names like natural, natural tan or nude or neutral. Uh, so they, they definitely play on that rhetoric of white naturalness that, you know, white is natural. It's the default. And anyone else who uh, isn't white is some kind of deviation. I also noticed that the very lightest shades tend to have names like porcelain, ivory, and alabaster. And those are all like goods and materials that are associated with economic luxury. So then of course I was looking at the darker shades and and what are they what are they named? Well, I noticed a lot of dark shades named things like cocoa, chocolate, and coffee, which are all first of all like foods, like something to be consumed, which has troubling, uh, I guess, theoretical repercussions for the way that we are constructing dark skin and darker skinned people and comparing with something to be consumed. But also if we're talking cocoa, chocolate, and coffee, these are all commodities that have been associated with the slave trade at some point or another. So it also, it just draws this comparison and evokes these ties to this particular period of history. And I think that it could be as simple as, you know, chocolate is brown and this particular shade of brown looks like chocolate, but uh, combined with this idea of white naturalness, I think it's a little bit more pervasive than that. So we can see colorism very much within these sort of foundational norms of beauty. But I'm, I'm really interested in hearing about how it manifests sort of beyond that in ways in which they're really salient, but maybe we take for granted. Yeah, there was a really interesting Twitter thread that came up uh, around the time of the Kamala Harris Vogue photo shoot issue, and it was basically black actresses from Hollywood talking about how they come to set with their makeup already done or with their hair already done because they can't be certain that the designated makeup artist or hairstylist knows how to do makeup on darker skin or has their foundation shade or knows or the, or the hairstylist knows how to do curly, kinky, coily hair. So I think that it's partly a curriculum issue that we don't teach in beauty school uh, how to 
work on darker skin or how to cut and style curly hair. And I think that we saw a little bit of that play out in the Kamala Harris Vogue photo shoot. So my understanding of that situation was that last minute Vogue chose to use a photo that Harris and her team chose as a digital cover instead and use a kind of lackluster photo as the print cover where she's in this kind of mediocre lighting and this tentative looking pose. And I've seen Vogue do similar things with like Simone Biles, who's an Olympic athlete, for example. Um, I think that it's a combination of things. I think it's a lack of understanding of the lighting, the staging, the photo editing that flatters darker skin. I myself have had photos taken of me where I've been edited to look really orange. And it's just a lack of understanding of the undertones and the specific um, needs, I guess, of, of clients with darker skin, which is kind of ridiculous when you're thinking like, if you're photographing for Vogue, you are the best of the best in your field. You've been chosen for a reason. But I think that that speaks to that photographing, doing makeup, doing lighting for people with darker skin or people of color more broadly is not part of the mainstream education in photography or in uh in this case, makeup. And then to to take another step back from the issue as well, I think that it speaks to a hesitation as well to portraying Black women in particular as beautiful, as powerful, because the photo that Kamala Harris and her team chose, she looks very like vice presidential, if you will. It's a, it's a much more powerful and commanding stance. It's not just about flattering. It's also about power and comfort with seeing women of color in positions of power and portraying them as such. Yeah, because, I mean, you're talking about the second most powerful person on the planet, right? And you imagine that a simple picture of that should reflect that because it would for anyone else in that position. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm really interested to hear the economic side of this because obviously there's some change happening in brewing and, and companies really attempting to, to spearhead a movement in the right direction. So are there better or less problematic brands accessible to people of color or do we kind of see the perpetuation of a hierarchy here in terms of accessibility with issues like affordability? I think you hit the nail on the head. When I first started wearing makeup like years ago, the only brands that made my skin tone of foundation were expensive, high-end brands. But we have seen change in recent years. So leading the way in terms of kind of brands that don't perpetuate these problematic notions of beauty and that have more inclusive shade ranges, it's actually Black-owned brands. Um, So in 2017, Rihanna created Fenty Beauty, and it's a makeup brand that started with 40 shades of foundation equally dispersed across the spectrum, and they were numbered rather than named. So avoiding the kind of naming issue and, and what we're constructing with that discourse. There are also Black-owned brands uh, like Pat McGrath Labs and Oma Beauty that are also leading the way. And I think normalizing offering a large and diverse shade range because when Rihanna released Fenty Beauty, we suddenly saw all of these brands kind of racing to fill out their 
previously poor shade ranges and compete with Fenty Beauty. So the fact that a powerhouse was able to create this new standard and everybody else has this economic incentive to fill out their shade ranges and to do that from not an a, a like this is the right thing to do perspective, but an economic incentive. I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. Um, so we do kind of see a trickle down effect with more affordable brands releasing a variety of shade ranges, but racism is persistent and it evolves, right? So one of the things that I've noticed is in drugstores, even if I know personally that a brand has a wide variety of foundation shades I will see on the shelf in the drugstore only the light shades and the rest are online only so then we have an availability issue right a lighter skinned person can go to the store and play around and match their color and walk out of the store with a foundation but darker skinned people have to go online so uh, it's slow going and racism like I said is persistent and is going to evolve but but I think progress is being made, I think, is is the takeaway there. It's great when you have someone like Riri because, you know, another example of this would be the Sikh farmers in India, right? Where she can do a simple act, but it moves the conversation forward. It opens up the conversation to people who weren't even paying attention to the conversations, the importance of a gatekeeper like that. And I also think it reflects kind of a bigger thing. Because one thing I'm trying to do with these podcasts is is shine light on these different points of contestation within the pop culture ether, right? And particularly with race, there's been so many of these exposed nerves that kind of touch all areas of life that people are now paying attention to for the first time in quite a while. And I'm wondering if that conversation is opening up the opportunities or the prospects for change in, in the beauty industry. Are BIPOC cosmetic users finding points of resistance to kind of challenge these standards aside from just having availability? And do you think even is this industry conducive to change? Yeah, really good question. And I definitely noticed when Black Lives Matter was trending back in June and July of 2020 that even in my little like beauty related bubble of the internet, there was a lot of uh, kind of change and shift in the kinds of conversations that were happening and who was having them. And one of the ways that that conversation uh, about race was has played out in the cosmetics industry is not only in questioning of shade ranges, which we've touched on, but also in questioning companies hiring practices, how they treat their BIPOC and especially Black employees in this context, whether they have any Black employees. So in June 2020, the founder of Oma Beauty, Sharon Shooter, so it's a Black-owned beauty brand and she's the founder, um, Sharon created a campaign and an Instagram account for it called Pull Up for Change. And basically, it was designed to encourage brands to disclose the demographics of their employees, the demographics of their management um, and holding them accountable for that. And a surprising amount of companies had no Black employees or 1% uh, Black employees or 90% white employees. Um, so it, it raises the question, not that... I mean, we can trouble the waters of what representation does and what it's good for. And I, I would encourage people to question the idea of representation as an ultimate goal. But if you don't have 
any black employees in your company, you're not going to be thinking about making products that work on darker skin or for black people or for people of color. So Pull Up for Change is one of the big shifts we've seen in the beauty community. The other thing that they do, another component of the campaign is to encourage large cosmetics retailers like Sephora or in the States, I saw Target, uh, encouraging them to commit a larger percentage of their shelf space to Black-owned brands. So I think that the the target was 15%. Typically, Black-owned brands tend to be really underrepresented in major retail stores. And I just personally, from like my own makeup shopping, I have seen more Black-owned brands and seen Black-owned brands like highlighted and spotlighted on the Sephora website and things like that. So I think that that is one major way that the cosmetics industry is changing and it is cosmetic user and BIPOC cosmetic user driven change. So to answer your question, I think it is conducive to change, um, especially with a focus on black owned brands and indigenous owned brands and and brands owned by other people of color as well. This is an important issue and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve. But yeah, this has just been such a great talk. And you mentioned your blog. And this is one of the things that like, I, I really respect about you, that you're taking your pedagogy and you're, and you're putting it into something more than just articles that very few people are ever going to read or hunt down, right? And I'm really interested to hear more about your work. And I think the listeners would really benefit from it too. So tell us a bit about your work and the different things you do. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that I run a blog. It's called Amanda Glowgetter and it began as a beauty blog. I actually started it with the intention to showcase how products look and perform on darker skin because at the time when I started it, there was a noticeable gap in the beauty blog market, if you will, in that it didn't feature people with darker skin and show how products and things perform on darker skin. Gradually, I've since expanded and now I cover more lifestyle content, so mental health advocacy, chronic illness advocacy, and I also use my blog and social media presence as a way to teach intersectional feminist theory and anti-racism to an audience beyond the university. Then in terms of my dissertation, my research, I'm working on my PhD dissertation. The subject of this talk was a, is a side project and not really directly related to my research. Um, my research is an intersectional feminist analysis of Plato's Republic, Laws, and Symposium. So in Republic, Plato famously says that men and women in the ideal city should have an equal shot at ruling and guarding the city, and that to do so, they need the same education. And then in Laws, to some extent, he kind of backtracks that statement. But these prescriptions in Republic are only for the ruling class, the guardians of the city. And this raises, I think, a really important question, which is what about lower class women? uh, And what does that mean for them? So Plato is largely silent on that. And in the process of undertaking this research, I discovered that there's this whole body of feminist literature and specifically feminist literature on the ancients that doesn't get taught as part of the canon, or at least that I wasn't taught as part of mainstream or survey courses. And I'm super interested in that. And I'm super interested in bringing that to a broader audience. It looks like I'm going to have that opportunity as I'll be teaching a feminist theory course for third years in winter 2022 as well. So I'm really excited about that and thankful for the conversations that this kind of research and my involvement has opened up, including this one. 
Yes, and I'm glad you're able to do that because, I mean, as we know, theory typically pretty narrow in terms of the approach and the people doing it, so I think it's fantastic that you have the opportunity with this course to really broaden the horizons. It's great. Absolutely. I'm really excited about it. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu dot poli sci.